right, good morning. You would go ahead and turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 1 and going through verse 33. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us. Holy God, we love you. And we're thankful that you are a God who speaks to us. We're thankful that you've given us your word. And so we pray now that you would be with us. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. Would you satisfy us with your steadfast love? Would you help us to see your mercies? Would you help us to rejoice in your faithfulness? And would you help me communicate these truths this morning? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Babylonians have set up a siege against Jerusalem. Jerusalem, God's holy city, the place where his priests have been making sacrifices in the temple, where his kings have held court for centuries and centuries. And now there is this godless, dirty, Gentile army that has the upper hand against God's chosen people. The Babylonians have destroyed everything outside of the city walls, and now they have set up a perimeter around Jerusalem. Nothing gets in, nothing gets out. You try to leave the city, that almost certainly means death by the sword. And if you stay inside the walls of Jerusalem, that almost certainly means that you are going to die of starvation. So the people of God, they're hungry, they're confused, they're scared. And so for months and months, they call out to God for deliverance. But deliverance isn't coming. In fact, it is God who is behind all of their calamities. They've worshipped other gods, they have ignored his laws, and they have refused to repent. This has all happened for the last time. And so God is dead set against them, and he is going to rip them out of the promised land. So the siege continues. There's more wailing, more starvation, unspeakable acts of desperation by the people until finally the Babylonians surge through the walls. They loot and burn the city. They capture the the Jews and haul them off into captivity, the ones that they don't kill. And Israel must watch on as the temple, this picture of God's dwelling place among his people, crumbles to the ground. God is gone. His promises have failed. We are all going to die, and all hope is lost. Shortly after these events, Lamentations was written. Lamentations is a collection of five poems of lament, written by someone who had first-hand experience of these exact events, probably the prophet Jeremiah. Each, each chapter features meditations on some of the darkest days in the lives of God's people, excruciating pain and 
confusion and chastisement and confession of sin, all of these things are packed into each chapter of Lamentations. But it's here in our text, in the middle chapter of Lamentations, in fact, in the middle part of the middle chapter, that the main idea rises like a phoenix from the ashes. And here it is. God is still merciful and faithful. So have hope in Him. And that's my hope for us this morning. When the days are dark, perhaps even when the days are their absolute darkest, we must remember that God is still faithful and merciful, and we must hope in Him. So look at this. I have three points for you. Point number one, suffering. Point number two, remembering. Point number three, responding. Point number one, suffering. So we're about to walk through the first 21 verses together. But before we do, I want you to consider just how amazing it is that God can relate to your suffering. And that the Bible gives us language that relates to our suffering. He is fully aware of your experience. He knows what you are going through. He knows that we suffer from chronic diseases. He knows that loved ones die. He knows that our hopes and dreams get crushed. He knows that our lives are full of worry and cares. He knows that we struggle to find direction and to, and to find purpose. He knows that our battle with sin is bitter. He knows that we often feel unheard and unseen. None of these things, none of these various ways that we suffer in this life catch God off guard. So here's what I want you to do. Whatever you're going through right now, this morning, let God's Word give language to your pain as we read. Starting in verse 1. Look there with me. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Under the rod of whose wrath? Well, God's. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Does it sometimes feel like God is afflicting you? Like he's angry at you? Does it ever feel like you're that annoying, hated puppy and every time God walks by and sees you, he just he kicks out in frustration? Does it feel like God is against you all the day long? And on one level, you, you know that isn't true, and that's right, but still there's this lingering thought that God is against me. Well, you aren't alone. The prophet Jeremiah feels the same way. Let's keep going. Verse 4. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. See what Jeremiah is doing here? He's 
he's powerfully taking the image of the siege against Jerusalem and applying it personally. God is like this unstoppable army that is trapping us inside of our tiny walls. And it feels like he is besieging us and and enveloping us on every side as we suffer. And it feels like he is causing us to be bitter and to be troubled by our circumstances. And it feels like this darkness of all this pain is looming over us day after day. We feel walled in, weighed down. And then we cry out to Him. This is what we should do. Where else can we go? And it feels like our prayers are being blocked. It says that, that, that His prayers are shut out. As if our prayers just bounce off of the ceiling. I wonder if you have ever felt that way. Verse 9. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. This new medicine will fix it, but then it doesn't. This new strategy to fight sin, this is going to fix it, but then it doesn't. This new job is finally going to fix all of my problems, but then it doesn't. We make all of these plans to try to get relief from all of our different suffering, but then it feels like God is the one who is blocking our path with huge stones that we can't get around. Nothing seems to work. He doesn't allow us to do anything, to find any way out of our suffering. So it feels. Verse 10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. And he drove it into my kidneys, the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood, meaning he's fed me something that is very bitter and tastes nasty. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Bereft of peace bereft of happiness. Is that you? Or has it been you? But maybe, maybe you can honestly say that it isn't you. And maybe this all seems really dramatic. Like, what are you going on about up there? But I have to be the bearer of bad news and tell you that a day is coming. A season of restlessness and joylessness is around the corner. We live in a fallen world, and troubles fall on us. No peace, no happiness. And it may drag on for so long that you don't even remember a time when you were happy or were at peace. Bank accounts empty. You're healthy until you aren't. Loved ones come and then loved ones go. God makes our teeth grind on the gravel. Verse 18. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Consider that the Babylonian siege lasted about two and a half years. The most resilient among them might have been able to maintain hope for what? A couple weeks? 
maybe a month. But after a couple of years in a siege, all hope has long evaporated like a drop of water in the Sahara Desert. You've stopped praying. You can't get your hope up enough to get up out of bed. Maybe, maybe you've been depressed like that. Maybe you're experiencing that now. And it's getting harder and harder to keep going. And you've long lost hope that things can get better. Verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. See what he's doing in this couplet? Lord, look at me and remember my affliction because that's all I remember. It's all I can think about all day, all the time. I'm bowing under the pressure. Do you see this at all? Because I'm about to break. Verse 21. But, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. All this venting and wailing and lamenting, it must give way to something else, namely hope. So here again, in the middle of the middle chapter of Lamentations, we come to it. What must we call to mind in order to have hope in the midst of so much pain? Brings us to point number two, remembering. What must Jeremiah call to mind in order to have hope? It's here, starting in verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. There it is. The key to hope is to recall God's character. We have to take a step back take our eyes off of our circumstances and set our eyes on God. And what do we see? We see that God is merciful and faithful. His steadfast love never ceases, Jeremiah says. Meaning he doesn't just love us, but he loves us with a steadfast love. A love that is patient and forbearing and forgiving. God is committed to doing you good even when you don't deserve it. And friends, we do not deserve it. What we deserve for our sin is nothing less than what Jerusalem got for her sin. The absolute unbearable wrath of God. And yet, did you notice that God's steadfast love still didn't cease even with Jerusalem? This siege wasn't the end of his steadfast love. How do we know that? Well, because Jeremiah made it out alive and wrote this book, didn't he? And we know that the remnant of Jerusalem was still preserved as they were scattered all across the world. His love stayed with them everywhere that they went. God may flood the whole earth in his judgment, but he still provides the ark. 
if God has steadfast love for Israel, even in the midst of his fiery judgment, how much more does God have steadfast love for you, O Christian? All of God's wrath was poured out on his son so that he might never pour out his wrath on you. Although it might feel like you've exhausted his steadfast love, that you've gotten to the bottom of it and that there's no more love, no more forgiveness, no more of God's kindness left for you, and you may be convinced that he is trying to destroy you, rest assured that you are in Christ and his steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. His mercies, that is, his undeserved kindnesses. In the Hebrew, it's actually in the plural, his kindnesses. They come one after the other, even alongside our suffering. God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. He makes the sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is upholding the entire world by the power of his word. Why? Because we deserve it? Again, no way. Every heartbeat, every drop of rain, every beautiful melody, every sweet taste, every penny in your pocket, every loved one that you've ever had the delight of, uh, of knowing, every sin that has been forgiven, it is all gifted to you. Because God is merciful. That is his nature. He loves to do good even to those who are not good. And just in case you still think that you've exhausted those mercies and he's all out, how could he continue to do good to you? Listen to what Jeremiah says next. His mercies are new every morning. They restart he just runs it all back again. Another sunrise, another summer shower, your daily bread, the love of a friend, forgiveness and undeserved kindness over and over. It just keeps coming. And the unfortunate truth is, is that the sheer volume of God's mercies often calls us to take them for granted, don't they? It's like a child, right? You, you take care of them virtually every second of every day, and then one little thing goes wrong, and they fall on the floor and they say, why don't you love me or do anything for me? What do you mean? I'm always, constantly doing you good. In fact, I'm the reason you're even here. Can you not see that I'm merciful and good to you? And the answer is no. I mean, not, not really. Not very easily. God's mercies are like, the air that we breathe, it's constantly sustaining us, but we can't see it. But it gives them anyways. Then finally, great is his faithfulness. Faithfulness means God always makes good on his promises. The Bible tells us that he cannot deny himself. If he wants to do something, it is as good as done. It tells us that there is no shadow of turning in God. He's not indecisive. He doesn't change his mind. It tells us that God is not a man, that he should lie. Has he not said it, will he not do it? And here's the kicker. God has promised 
of his own volition, without anyone twisting his arm, but because of his great mercies, he has promised that he would do good to his people forever. We see this great faithfulness and this drive to do good to his people forever in the storyline of the Bible. We can just follow it. He promised to Adam and Eve that he would give them a son to crush the serpent's head. He promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and that all the world would be blessed through his singular offspring. He promised Moses that he would deliver the Hebrews from Egypt, and he did. And he also promised that he would curse Israel if they worshipped other gods and disobeyed his commandments, and they did a lot. And still he stuck with them because it also says that God is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And he did forgive sins a lot. He promised David that he would give one of his sons an eternal throne, a throne that he would rule over uh, sit on and rule over God's people in perfect peace forever. And he promised a new and better covenant. He promised that he would cleanse us from our sins and that he would fill us with the Holy Spirit and that he would give us a new heart and new desires so that we might truly love him and obey him. And God fulfilled all of these promises. All of them. 2,000 years ago on a cross, when he died in our place, and when he rose from the dead, crushing the serpent's head, just like he told Adam and Eve, blessing all the nations, making a way for salvation, just like he told Abraham, delivering his people from the wilderness of sin, just like he told Moses, sending the Holy Spirit to indwell us, just like he told many of the prophets, and he set up a kingdom. A kingdom that will never fall where peace will reign for all of eternity, just like he told David. And he has set up a kingdom, one that has started now, and one where we will dwell in forever. A kingdom where we will adore and praise him with new hearts and new bodies forever and ever and ever. God hasn't failed to deliver on even one of these promises. Why do we think he is failing us now in our suffering. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This verse is often abused, but it doesn't mean it's not true. In fact, God made this very promise to Israel during this siege that we're talking about. And he is saying it to you right now. In the midst of your suffering, he has plans for your good to give you something better, to give you a future. And if he keeps his promises, shouldn't that give us hope? Has he not said it? Will he not do it? And in case you're still Doubting the faithfulness of your God. Listen to Romans 8 again, a favored passage for a reason. And we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God did not hold back the blood of his only son for you, what makes you think that he's going to hold back on something else? What good promise is your heavenly Father not going to make good on? If he, has done, if he has done all of this to give you relief from your greatest suffering, the wrath of God, how will he not also, along with him, give us relief for all of our other suffering? He will. Oh, friends, God is faithful. Your steadfast love, O oh Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. So God's love is steadfast. His mercies are new every morning. And he is faithful and keeps every good promise. But I don't want you to miss the point of all of this. I'm not saying that your hope is in all of these wonderful gifts themselves. But your hope must be in the giver. If it's in the gifts, you're going to be weak and frail. Something will come along and your hope is going to snap like a toothpick. This could be true even if you are hoping in these eternal spiritual things down the line. It could be that you're hoping for a new body because you just don't want to be sick. And you're hoping to get to heaven because you have this idea of how you're going to have a mansion and you're going to be, you're going to be rich. Well, that could reveal idolatry in your heart. It may be evidence you really worship health and wealth and not God at all. As John Piper says, if you could have heaven without Jesus, would you be satisfied? No, brothers and sisters. Our hope must be in the giver himself and who he is. Here's what I mean. Do you see his goodness in the sunshine, in your friendships, in deliverance from sin and hell? Do you see what kind of God you love and serve? Do you see how sweet He is and kind He is and glorious He is? Do you see how powerful He is and worthy He is in the way that He can keep all of His promises? In light of who He is, anchor your hope there and then ask yourself, if your circumstances never got better this side of heaven, would you be satisfied? Would that be enough? God did not promise that he is going to fix every suffering that you experience on the side of heaven. He didn't promise that you're going to get better. He didn't promise that your loved ones aren't going to pass away too soon. He didn't promise that you're going to conquer this sin in this lifetime. He didn't. But he did promise, ultimately, that you would get him. Now, is that enough for you? Or is it not? Is the hope that you will be with your Savior enough, or do you push that aside and say, I'm actually looking for something else? Because if you are, you have no hope. But if you agree with verse 24, 
you have all hope. Verse 24, which says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. If the Lord is your portion, and if He is enough, then I have amazing news for you. You already have Him. And your hopes are fulfilled and will be fulfilled when you are with Him in heaven forever. And then, only then, will every pain that you experience come to an end and, end and terminate in hope and glory and enjoyment in your Father forever. You can have hope in the midst of pain because God will make good in His promise to be with you. That is something He has promised. That is something that He will surely do. But it will only be enough if He is your portion and your prize. Now, instead of hope, you might actually be feeling more condemnation right now. So I, I want to clarify that I'm not saying that you should feel guilty if you're suffering hurts. That isn't proof that you love the gifts or love something else more than God. It's not wrong for painful things to be painful. It is painful by definition. It's not even wrong to sometimes get consumed in your pain for long stints of time. Just open up the Psalms. It's almost every single one of them. But what I want to do is I want to calibrate your compass. What are you looking for? What are you looking for that's going to put an end to your pain? What is your hope? Well, it must be God himself. It's okay to hurt, but let it drive you towards that thing, which is your only real hope, the Lord. That brings us to point number three, our response. Point three, our response. Verse 25, Jeremiah says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. We've all heard the, the age-old problem that says, if God is good, then why is there suffering in the world? And the conclusion usually is, either God isn't good or he's not able to stop suffering. There are all sorts of good answers to this, to the problem of evil and the problem of pain. Let me just give you one of them. And it's this. God is good. God is able to stop all suffering. But there is also a good purpose, at least for a time, for suffering. Notice that Jeremiah says good three times in these three verses. God is good to the person who is waiting for him in the midst of their pain. It is good that we wait quietly for salvation while we are suffering. And it is good for us to bear the yoke of suffering, especially early on in life. The point is, we need to reevaluate the problem of our pain in light of God's faithfulness. Pain is bad, but in the hands of a merciful and faithful God, we must remind ourselves that pain for a time 
is ultimately good. And only when you see that will you have hope. But how is pain good? Like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but come on, (laughs) no way. Well, Jeremiah, he doesn't go into all of that. But I still think this is a good time for us to kind of pause and think about how our suffering is for our good. So I want to quickly look at just nine reasons why suffering is good. That's a scary number, but we're going to move through these pretty quickly. Nine reasons why our suffering is good. First, number one, suffering loosens our love for the world. God uses suffering to take a little bit of the shine off of temporal things. You weren't made for this world. This is not your home. And how often do we forget that? Pain draws our eyes up to another world, up to a better one. As Paul says, our suffering is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Not as we look to things that we can see, but it's causing us to look at things that we cannot see. God and all of his many promises. Suffering loosens our love for the world. Number two, suffering exposes the idols of our heart. Suffering reveals our idols for what they really are. Deaf, dumb, powerless, and totally unworthy of our worship. For example, money is a good gift, but it is a terrible God. And suffering reveals that truth very easily. When your money dries up, or when you run into a situation where money cannot solve it, you see how flimsy that idol really is. But what you're left with is a God who can provide for your every need according to His riches in heaven. A God who has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Suffering proves that God, not our idols, is worthy of our worship. Number three, suffering increases our hope in God. Sometimes God dashes your hopes on the rocks so that your hope will increase in Him. So the irony here is that God has to empty you of all these bad hopes, which causes you to feel hopeless for a time. Like, why are you doing that to me? You're making me feel hopeless. You're doing the opposite of helping, Lord. But He does that so that He, he, so that he can fill you up with the real hope that you need, hope in Him. We say, once I get this thing, I'll finally be better. But if that thing isn't God... It's going to let you down, or worse, lead you astray. And so God comes along and He mercifully takes it away, even though it hurts and causes us to feel hopeless. He has to peel our hands off of the driftwood to get us to grab onto the thick rope of His promises. Number four, suffering increases our dependence on God. And you'll notice there's going to be plenty of overlap in these. Suffering increases our dependence on God. As 21st century Americans, we got this, right? (laughs) No, not right. We don't actually have it. I'm so dependent, and then a a little cold comes along, and I'm out of commission for a week. I can't do anything, right? Just ask Jackie. (laughs) 
we're so foolish, right, that we think we have everything under control as we go through our lives. Like, man, yeah, I got all of this. I'm so reliable. Not realizing that everything that we are controlling is actually the result of God's mercies. That's His blessings at work in our life. You already are completely dependent on God. If He decides He's not upholding the world by the power of His Word right now, you, ain't, you don't have control, right? He has all control. But He uses suffering to help us see that truth more and more clearly. Number five, suffering gives us endurance. The great theologian Kelly Clarkson sings, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And she's right. She's right. Suffering builds up your calluses. It makes you tougher for tribulation. So a young boy, he, he cuts his finger and he falls to the floor incapacitated. But over time he grows into a man that can endure more cuts, more bumps, more bruises without succumbing to the pain and while still getting, a, getting on with the work. Christians, it's us, we are spiritually anti-fragile. We don't break under pressure. In fact, the more suffering and pressure that we endure, the stronger we get, the more our endurance increases. The result of suffering in a Christian is that they get more holy and more resilient. That's a good thing. Number six, suffering displays God's power. Through suffering on the cross, God demonstrated his awesome resurrection power. No suffering on the cross, no resurrection power. So it is with you and me. We are jars of broken clay, Paul tells us. We are weak, we are sick and sore, so that God might show off his all-surpassing power at work in us. How does that terminally ill Christian do it? How do they keep going? They say, it's not the power, it's not the power that I have. It's not my own strength. It's the power of God in me. It's the hope that I have in Him. Which brings us to number seven. Suffering displays the hope of the gospel. Not only does suffering show off God's power, but it shows off the trustworthiness of God. We press on, not because we can pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, but because we believe that God is merciful and faithful. And so we keep going, knowing that He is going to keep all of His promises. Nothing says the gospel is true and God is worthy of worship quite like a suffering saint that has this unshakable faith that it's all going to work out because God. Number eight. Suffering allows us to comfort others. As we suffer, God comforts us with the promises of the gospel. This in turn trains you up so that you might come alongside other suffering saints and comfort them with the same comforts that you have received. I was hurting like this, and God reminded me of this. I see that you're hurting like this. Let me remind you of this. God wants to use your suffering so you can be a comfort to others. Number nine, suffering is a form of discipline. God disciplines those he loves. 
It's proof that you're an actual child of God, that you receive discipline by His hand. And the beauty of discipline from the Lord is that it always perfectly accomplishes exactly what He sent it to do. You will be shaped to be more like Jesus when He disciplines you. So sometimes our suffering is the pain that is caused to us by a loving father who is spanking his children out of love. So in one sense, I understand why we ask, why is God allowing me to suffer? It's not wrong to ask that question. But in another sense, I have to tell you, it's not as if God hasn't answered us. He has told us why we suffer. Maybe He hasn't told you the specific reasons for your suffering. Almost certainly not. And you can drive yourself crazy trying to figure out exactly what it is that God is up to. But He's made it very clear that our suffering is for our good. So I think we would do better to start asking ourselves different questions. Maybe a question like this. What might be some of God's good purposes for this suffering. You might even sit down and make a list. What idol might God be exposing? What part of my character might He be trying to mold to be more like Jesus? How might He be revealing more of His goodness to me in the midst of this? When you remember that God is sovereign over your suffering for your good, then you can find hope. And dare I say it, you might even start rejoicing in your suffering, because He is doing you good. Now, I wish I could give you more tangible ways than just that to apply this sermon to your life. It'd be a lot easier if I could say, you know, just pop this pill in the morning and say this prayer every night and you'll have more hope. But it's not that easy. It's not that simple. And, or really, it's kind of the opposite. It's actually that it's simpler It's just a battle to believe, a bitter battle to believe, to believe that God is merciful and that He has a plan and that He is faithful to you even when He has you on the operating table. There are no shortcuts to wrestling with these truths. You have to wrestle with them in order to learn to trust Him more and to see His good purposes at work in your life. And there you will find but I want to leave you with one more thing as you wrestle. And that's the last three verses here in Jeremiah. Verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he calls grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. I just want to remind you that God is for you, not against you. He isn't afflicting you from the heart, meaning He isn't angry with you. He's not, he's not punishing you. He's not trying to destroy you. He's not after you, brothers and sisters. And also, this will not last forever. He causes grief for a time, He says, but He sees your pain, and He's eager to have compassion, and He wants to fix it and put it all together. I don't know exactly all the reasons why He's waiting, but He's going to do it. He is going to have that compassion and bring us all into a place with no more suffering. It will end, and it will end ultimately with your prospering. Now, oftentimes, 
we get to enjoy the fruit of our suffering in this life. And that's, that's great. You know, we, we get to enjoy the fruit of things like growth and holiness and an increased satisfaction in God. Yes. Sometimes we experience relief from our suffering. We battle sickness, but oftentimes we get better. We have like financially lean years, but then we have financially fat years. We go through seasons of not having purpose, but then God graciously comes along and gives us a renewed vigor for life and, and a strong sense of purpose. He relieves our suffering sometimes in this life. But in other circumstances, we don't really get either. You know, it just feels like this perpetual, purposeless pain. You feel the dentist digging around in your mouth, but you don't get any relief for the toothache. Well, what are we going to do? The only thing we can do is press on in hope. Keep moving. Keep battling for belief. And whether in this life or in the next, God will deliver you from that suffering. And He will show you what He was up to all along. He's going to give you that, that kindness. And in that day, you're going to see it. You're going to say, oh, that's what you were doing. I knew you were good all along. And you will rejoice in Him. And you will be strengthened to see, you are my portion and my prize. You are a good and glorious God. And it's going to be a great day. Now, I have to end on a low note for any friends here who are unbelievers. I have to tell you that if you are not in Christ, then Christ is against you. And He will destroy you. And His mercies and His steadfast love, they will come to an end. And you will be terrified to learn that God is faithful. It's going to be the worst news in the world that God is going to keep His promises because He will by no means acquit the guilty. And a day is coming when there will be no more time for repentance. And your suffering will have served no purpose other than to just be a foretaste of the suffering that is awaiting you in hell. But I want to plead with you. It does not have to be that way. That doesn't have to be the end of the story. Friend, let your pain, let the suffering that you inevitably experience in this life drive you towards Him, towards a God whose arms are open wide, who really, really wants to love you and save you and have you enjoy Him forever. Come to Him where you can know the discipline of a loving Father instead of the wrath of a holy God. Because God is merciful and faithful. Put your hope in Him. And brothers and sisters, those of us who are in Christ, He is merciful and faithful. So let us put our hope in Him. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for all of Your many promises. Thank You for blessing us this morning. And we ask You would help us to suffer well, to place our hope in you. Would you make yourself our portion? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.